Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Now, this is the global business radio show for entrepreneurs. And I can say hello world because we are the one business radio show that does go out right across the planet every week. If you're listening for the first time, welcome. This is the program where we tell it the way it is. We do everything we can to assist entrepreneurs. We try to bring you the latest information every week on what's happening. And it doesn't matter where in the world it's happening. We will bring it to you. We're proud of the fact that we're the number one radio show globally for entrepreneurs, and we thank all of you for listening every week. It wouldn't be possible without you, and we really do appreciate it. I've never done this before, but I want to send out today a, um, a birthday greeting to a friend of mine, Ken Rakowski, who um, he's the host of the CBS program Business Rockstars. He's also the head of Metal, Media Entertainment Technology Alpha Leaders. He's an incredible guy. It's his birthday this week. So happy birthday, mate. Big party on Catalina. And uh, Ken's got enormous influence in media entertainment and technology and a great guy. So have a great birthday. Now, this week, all the big technology guns have announced extremely healthy profits. Have you ever sat down and thought, just how much money these companies make? Well, let me give you a clue. Apple makes $2,000 profit every second. That's $7 million profit every hour. Profit. (laughs) Jeez. Samsung makes $1,500 a second. Now, compare that with Facebook that makes only only makes $80 a second, or Twitter that only makes $36 a second, Yahoo only makes $28 a second profit. However, even at a paltry $28 a second profit, it still works out to be over $16 million profit every week. Woo! Mobile technology is poised to revolutionise healthcare, Uh, The smartphone is a technological smorgasbord. It has a camera, a video, a microphone, a library, a photo, music album. Now, if you add some apps to your 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 smartphone, it turns into a GPS, a torchlight or a magnifying glass or any one of a million other things. Even better, connected to a wireless network, It allows you to surf the web, send texts, emails, and of course, you can even make phone calls with them. The smartphone's going to play a major role in health services in the future. I mean, it's really quite astounding. With wireless networks, the internet, connectivity, your bandwidth capacities, the huge popularity of smartphones, cloud computing, which is capable of storing an enormous volume of data, we've got a convergence of tools that can be readily applied 
to medicine. So we're in the middle of a, tech, a digital technological revolution that will reshape the world of medicine. Several innovative devices are already on the market in the United States. California-based AliveCore has launched a mobile heart monitor that only requires an app and a smartphone equipped with two electrodes. The patient presses two fingers on the electrodes or lays the phone flat on his chest and the phone sends your electrocardiogram wirelessly to the cloud where the doctor can access it. Now, this recording can last either 30 seconds from one to five minutes or it can be continuous. Now, this invention only costs $199. It's been approved by the FDA and it's also received European approval. Now, AliveCore encourages physicians to prescribe this device to their cardiac patients and they can use it every time they feel faint or have palpitations and then they can send their electrocardiograms by email. Bloody incredible, isn't it? I had a heart attack about 10 years ago. Maybe I need one of these things just to make sure that I'm still alive and going. Now, the great thing about it is that these things are cheap. General Electric's healthcare pocket-sized V-Scan, which is an ultra-portable ultrasound scanner, it'll soon replace a doctor with a good old stethoscope. The V-Scan is specifically adapted to abdominal, obstetric and cardiac imaging and offers black and white imaging but also includes a real-time colour blood flow Doppler. This one costs $7,900 but that's opposed to $30,000 for current scanners. V-Scan's competitor, which was developed by Moby Sante, has a probe that is linked wirelessly to a smartphone and just think of what benefit that would be in um, rural zones and in developing countries. It would be incredible. There's also the compact Sotera wireless Visi mobile system, which is attached to your wrist and it measures a huge array of vital signs, which then, of course, again, transmitted to the physician's tablet or to their smartphone. So whether you're in hospital or whether you're at home, you can be monitored just as carefully and just as closely as if you were in intensive care, for example. Cellscope, it's a mobile microscope, which turned smartphones into an otoscope, which is used by doctors to look inside your ears and throat. Now, when attached to your cameras, to the phone, to the camera on your phone, it makes it possible to examine the eardrum and enables parents to take photos of their kids' ears and send them to their paediatrician, reducing the number of consultations and enabling the long-distance diagnosis of ear infections. These things are all fantastic for anybody that lives out of a metropolitan area. The company's also developed a cell phone microscope that enables health workers to test for tuberculosis in remote countries or remote areas. 
LifeWatch 5, the first mass market healthcare smartphone. That was launched in Israel two years ago. You just put your fingers on the sensors and the LifeWatch 5 measures your electrocardiogram, your heart rate, your glucose level and your blood oxygen saturation. This device works on Android. You can also measure body fat percentage and stress levels. It also uses an ultra-red, an infrared sensor, which checks your body temperature. Now, the LifeWatch 5 includes a whole range of features, some of which monitor nutrition or just simply to remind you when to take your medicine. This is ideal for people who suffer from chronic illness that requires regular monitoring like hypertension or diabetes. It costs only 600 bucks, and it's available in English, of course, but also in Hebrew and Arabic. Boy, smartphones can also be used to test saliva for the flu or streptococcus or as a microscope to help diagnose HIV, malaria, tuberculosis and anemia. Just using your smartphone. So smartphones just might revolutionise the way that we practice medicine and take medicine out to a far greater range of people instantly, simply by connecting wirelessly to your physician. Do you have to take pills regularly? Did you take any today? Did you remember? Did you take them at the right time? All of them? The right number? Boy, I, I, um, I take pills for diabetes, and uh, I quite often forget whether I've taken them or I ha- whether I haven't, how many I've taken. I just forget. So, you know, following doctor's orders can be a real pain in the ass particularly if you're supposed to take multiple pills. So scientists are working on microchips that can be preloaded with medications and they can be implanted into our bodies. Pretty creepy, huh? They can be programmed to administer the right drugs in the right quantities at exactly the right time. Your, your doctor can have adjust the dose any way he wants, or it can stop the drug altogether by remote control. Gee, you wouldn't want, to, wouldn't want it to fall into the wrong hands of somebody that didn't like you that could cut off your drugs or double them or triple them or quadruple them. But extensive testing has shown that this method is safe and it's effective. Now, the first product will be released in 2017, and it's going to be hormonal contraception device that can be turned off and on wirelessly and releases a consistent daily dose. We'll have the ability to offer progestin and estrogen together like a combination birth control pill. Now, that's pretty cool. And you can um, take it when you want or not take it when you want. Better still, the device will last five years but it is possible to create one that 
could remain in the body and effectively deliver drugs for up to 15 years. Now, this device can also, this chip inserted in your arm or wherever it's inserted, could also transmit data to hospitals and doctors so you can have a permanent record of exactly what pills you took and when you took them. I'm really looking forward to this new era of medicine. I think it's extraordinary. I think I mentioned to you they went to a presentation a few weeks ago where they were talking about the fact that they now have the ability to reboot your brain. So they download everything that you know, which is everything experience that you've ever had, and at some point, you know, when you're 65 or 70 or whatever age you are, they just download all that stuff or upload all that information back in again. I think that's fantastic. So I guess that's the end of, um, of Alzheimer's. Further down the line, this um, chip goes into your body, could serve as a rescue device, releasing medications. Say if you had a heart attack, it could just release the medications automatically um, so that, you know, you don't have to wait to get to the hospital before you get your first zap of something that's going to save your life. So that's, that's pretty incredible, I reckon. I'm looking forward to the next um, whatever time I've got of healthcare. It's going to be a very exciting time. Great investment too, incidentally, for any all of you investors out there. I think um, investing in the new era of healthcare could be a extremely good investment. Now, WhatsApp, as you probably know, is waiting to hear whether European regulators are going to clear its $19 billion acquisition by Facebook. It hit a big milestone last week. It has 500 million active monthly users. 500 million. It's incredible, isn't it? They're sharing 700 million photos and 100 million videos every single day. So WhatsApp, 500 million active monthly users. 700 million photos and 100 million videos every single day. That's 5 million videos an hour. Wow. The next big feature for WhatsApp is a rollout to support free voice calls, which will be released in the next few months. I guess that puts them up against uh, Skype and VoIP and uh if you're already using it for photos, messages, and videos, then I guess it'd probably become your first stop for um, free voice. They also have um, new privacy settings that allow users to decide who can see their status and their profile photos. That's very necessary and uh, a great initiative. Now, Coom and the co-founder Brian Acton believe the single biggest barrier to WhatsApp's continued growth will be making, you know, as if the app becomes complicated and bloated. So the screens are very small. 
So there's a limited amount of memory and bandwidth. So they've decided they're just going to really focus on simplicity. Now, simplicity is especially important because many of WhatsApp's users are joining the service as they buy their first phones and come online for the first time. And geographically is interesting too. It's interesting to see where they're growing. Their biggest sources of growth right now are Mexico, Brazil, India, and Russia. Wow. I guess if you're um, WhatsApp, you've got to sit there and go, well, the reality is that um, we're getting competition from zillions of other mobile messaging app makers. They're everywhere. And uh, many of them are very popular all around the world. And some of them are talking about taking their companies public. So that's going to be a very, very crowded marketplace. And particularly in the Asian Asian countries, you know, WhatsApp is getting beaten by competitors there. Uh, Line's got more active users than WhatsApp in Japan, Thailand and Taiwan. And Keiko Talk has more in Korea. And, of course, WeChat is a monster in China. So there's a lot of, sure, there's a lot of countries in the world, but they've got a hell of a lot of really big competition. And uh, people are so savvy these days, you know, they expect a great user experience. So I just hope that the best and the simplest and the most appealing app wins. But my money's on WeChat. There's also a new app that was released last week for prostitution. (laughs) The new app is called Pepper, P-E-P-P-R. It's similar to a dating site, but it's for connecting prostitutes to clients. Now, in 2002, Germany legalised prostitution and the industry there has expanded dramatically. Um, I've seen estimates that put the number of prostitutes in Germany at about 400,000. So 400,000 hookers just in Germany alone. And that turns over a minimum of 15 billion euros a year. So now a startup based out of Berlin has launched Pepper which bills itself as the first mobile web app for booking erotic entertainment. It's a nice way to put it. A prospective client simply lists their location, acknowledges that they're at least 18, selects a gender of choice, and they're presented with photos and profiles of potential men or women or combinations thereof, offering to have sex for a fee. Prostitutes set up their profiles for free and clients pay a 5 to 10 euros fee for making the booking. Clients can browse the prostitutes based on services they want as well as the body type they desire. Sounds like a bloody good idea to me. The co-founder, Pia Poppenreiter, said the idea came to her when she was walking through the red light district at night. It was chilly and I saw the poor girls on the streets And I thought, why isn't there an app? It's not efficient to stand around waiting outside for someone to turn up. Good thinking, Pia. So it just goes to prove that where there's a will, 
there's always a way. So while it's a bit unique, we at the Bob Pritchard Radio salute all entrepreneurs. We don't care what you do. So Pia, good for you, girl. You've shown great initiative. An app for hookers. Now, this program is all about entrepreneurs, whether you've got an app for hookers or whether you've got something else. Now, we salute you, whether you've just opened a dry cleaning store or um, developed a new app. We don't care if you're 14 or whether you're 114. If you're an entrepreneur and you've got enough guts to get out there and give it a go, we are a big fan and we will do absolutely anything we can to assist you. So... If you've got a question about any aspect of business, please don't hesitate to email me. It's bob at bobpritchard.com and we'll answer it on air or we'll email you directly. We're the number one radio show in the world for entrepreneurs. So no matter where you are in the world, we thank you for listening. Now, after the break, I'm going to be talking with Rob Dickens. Now, Rob was the managing director of Warner Brothers Music Publishing and then appointed international vice president when he personally signed up Vangelis and the Sex Pistols, among a whole bunch of others. He later became the chairman of Warner Music UK and made the company hugely profitable with artists such as Prince, Foreigner, ZZ Top and Madonna. And uh, Rob also brought Seal, Simply Red and sure to the table. So this is a guy that knows one hell of a lot about music and how to pick winners. He constructed Sure's song Believe and worked with Rod Stewart extensively. He was honoured by the Queen with a CBE in 2003 and was named Man of the Year, receiving the Music Industry Trust Award. Now, I caught Rob at 11am in a cab in London after a big night out. Interesting interview. You're listening to the Bob Pichard Radio Show on Voice America Business, and I'll be back with Rob in just a moment. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. 
Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking No Bullshit Radio Show. I really appreciate you being with me tonight. This segment is about the business of show business. What happens behind the scenes, how it works, not the crap that you read in the tabloids. And when I talk about show business, I mean it in the really the broadest form. We've had actors, singers, theme park attraction builders, gold medalists, and tonight we're fortunate to have Rob Dickens, one of the heavyweights of the world music recording industry with us. Rob was Managing Director of Warner Brothers Music Publishing, then appointed International Vice President when he personally signed up Vangelis, the Sex Pistols, among others. He later became the chairman of Warner Music UK and made the company hugely profitable with artists such as Prince, Foreigner, ZZ Top and Madonna driving the profits. Rob brought Seal, Simply Red and Sher to the label. He also constructed Sher's song Believe with six writers that didn't meet each other until they picked up all their awards and worked with Rod Stewart. He works extensively with the arts and was honoured by the Queen with a CBE and in 2003 was named Man of the Year receiving the Music Industry Trust Award. Now I've caught Robert 11 o'clock at night in London after a big night out and he's in the music industry and he's sober. Now that's a, that's quite a um, quite a claim to fame. Hi Rob, how are you? Hi, I'm Bob. I'm sober. That's all you need to know. That is fantastic. Um, in the last 15 years, I don't, I don't quite, I, I had several singles back in the 60s, it gives you an idea of how old I am, and uh, we used to record them and then run them around the radio stations and beg and plead and bribe to get them played, but in the last 15 years, um, everything's changed, hasn't it? It's been turned on its head, so, and as I understand it, the, the days of producing an album and running around all the stations and doing all that, that seems to be over. Um, is the focus now totally on singles and the internet, or is that too simple? I think that's I think that's much too simple. I think that the the running around radio stations and more these days television stations is still the key to breaking an artist and to making the big sales. We now live in an environment where there are a million ways to get your music heard. But when uh, when I was growing up in the business, there were very few. Um, so now if, you, if you're creating music, you do not have to go to a record company to get a record deal. You can actually put your music out there. The only trouble with doing that, of course, is so are a million other people at the same time. Yeah. So you have so many more access points now than you ever had, but still the radio, the television, the record company are acting as filters. So you've got more music now than ever before, but the filters are still as dominant as ever, and that is the traditional means that we all grew up with. So, do, does radio play actually matter anymore? I mean, I, I sit in my car and I listen to um, satellite radio now. I never listen to regular terrestrial radio, and I don't, I don't know anybody that does. So, and most people seem to be sitting there glued to their iPod or whatever they're glued to. So, does actual radio matter that much anymore? Well, radio matters in the fact that when it broadcasts four minutes of music, yep. it's heard by a lot, a lot of people at the same time. Right. So radio audiences are as big as they ever were. Um, 
again, we have more ways of listening to music and having, you know, making your own compilations, making your own. But all you're really doing there is repeating your own playlist. So you're really sort of on a downward spiral of discovery by right. starting with the uh, with a world that you already know and then listening to that time and time again. So the actual point of listening to radio or going online to discover music um, is still incredibly important because people, as much as they're very happy listening to music they either grew up with or they're familiar with or they're comfortable with, there's still the cutting edge still makes a hell of a lot of difference and that really is about new discovery and new discovery comes from radio and the internet now so is it is it about is the important thing about radio say over over the internet or mtv is it most important thing that it that you get a lot of people hearing it at the same time so that gives impetus to the sale so exactly it's a synchronicity of a hundred thousand people hearing one piece of music at the same time and maybe two thousand people going out and buying it as a result that you can't get with the internet because you don't know who else is listening to it at the same time so you it's a radio whether it's broadcast or it's internet radio um such as last fm or pandora or any of the new kind of um discovery music stations yeah. it's still incredibly important so is this given a big advantage to the uh, smaller record labels or the independent record labels, or are the big record labels just as important as they always were? Well, the big record labels um, have the connections with radio and television. Yeah. They also have, not that anyone at radio and television would agree, would, would agree to this, <laughs> but, but in effect, if you've got the biggest act in the world yeah. um, and you're talking to a TV station about a new act... They want access to your big acts, sure. so they're not they're not going to upset you by not listening. They're not going to just play it because you want them to play it, yeah. but they will give special treatment in the way they listen to your new acts because they right. they still want access to your big acts. Now that works whether you're a, a small label or a big label if yeah, you've got sure. big acts. But the the big big labels have the bigger acts and have more of them. Mm. Therefore, when it comes to television and radio, it's an advantage. And it comes to money, it's an advantage in terms of marketing, promotion, all the other things you can do. So the big record labels are not yet dinosaurs, as if they're, they're being written off as. They, they are still incredibly powerful um, machines to make talent, to turn talent into success. But whereas they used to be those in the medium and, and independence, whereas they used to be the only way of it happening, they now... Um, are, are a major part, but not all of it. So the, the, the landscape's changed in that effect. Yeah, you do hear about the the imminent death of the of the labels. Um, so, well, the imminent death of the labels is because they just keep eating each other. When I started the music business, you know, there was Island Records and Virgin Records and RCA and CBS and Warner's and Electra. And, you know, they, all these things existed as separate entities. Yeah. And now, of course, there are three. Right. So the, the way they're, they're reducing themselves is just by, you know, cannibalism. It's not, it's, it's not really by erosion. So this big change that um, has happened in the way we market, um, market our music, who's that disadvantage the most? The record companies, the music publishers, the artists or the public? Or who, who's really been disadvantaged by this? 
Well, I think the entire business is disadvantaged by the fact there is so much illegal consumption of music. Yep. I mean, it's, re- it's reckoned to be in excess of 75% of music is consumed um, wow. sort of outside of people paying for it. Wow. Um, so, th- but that's always existed in physical form as well, with piracy and CD and, and cassette piracy. Um, so... It's that entire, everyone that participates from the artists and the record companies suffer from that. And that is a product of technology. Technolo- technology has allowed access to music, but it's also access to have music for free. Is that, is that a, um, you know, people, people here, particularly in the US, are always saying, if everybody paid half as much tax, everybody would stick their hand up and own up and pay all the tax that you look that you on tax money you you earn which i think is a bunch of crap because i think if people are going to cheat in their taxes they're going to cheat no matter what the level of tax is however is that the same with music i mean do people say well bloody why am i going to pay a buck 50 for a song um why don't and i, I can get it for free yeah well or if it was 50 cents would they buy it and not run the risk of doing it illegally I have a feeling, I don't think there's any risk of doing it illegally, really. I mean, I don't think people sit there, and it's, it's a bit like driving at sort of 35 in a 30-mile limit. I don't think people yeah. think they're breaking the law when they do it. So yeah. um, they know they are, but I don't think they feel the risk of it. Would they do it? I, I'm a big believer, um, I, I'm probably in the minority, is that I do think it matters. Yeah. I think when, when the potential consumption of music is in the hundreds of millions, if not billions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what we can see from the downloads of a Lady Gaga or a, or a Dell videos that yeah. there are hundreds of millions of people consuming music. Yeah. I think, and if you're thinking that 75% of them are not paying for it, I have a feeling that if the price came down to a significant level, yeah. which it is doing by erosion, but I think if it was a decision made, yeah. that if you put music out online at a very very affordable price yeah then i think a lot of people would go i'm very happy with paying this small amount for it and i think you'd get a huge increase in small amounts that would be far in excess of what you get from today but what's happening is it's happening by erosion whereas people used to buy an album for you know 10 15 bucks um and now they're, they're picking two or three tracks. Right. So, so to get the, what their enjoyment of an album, they're probably paying three dollars. Yeah. So yeah. it's already gone down dramatically, but it's seen as the consumer doing that, and not as the record industry or the music industry doing that. So I, I have a feeling that it will get to a uh, an amount, whether it's through subscription models or other ways of happening, that that uh, streaming is. You know, they obviously the new one. Um, where pay, paying for play will be minute but enormous numbers. Right. And I think that's that's what the future is going to be. Um, and it will probably be through something like Facebook. I think Facebook, you know, could end up being the most important music network wow. because it's already got so many people on it. Yeah, that 700 it, million. <laughs> so if you can go on it and and get music and then there's a payment structure worked out within something like that, uh, there's a lot of thought that needs to go into where it goes to next because always a lot of the music industry sticks to the old models if we're living in the CD explosion of the late 80s. Yeah. Um, and they're still trying to have that business model 
to go forward and that business model has been shattered but they're still clinging on to it and there's a lot of backward thinking in the music industry where and a lot of forward thinking in the technology industries and the googles the facebooks they're thinking about the future and the record industry still trying to hold on to getting the 15 bucks for the cd yeah, and I also, I also believe that they're missing a trick because um, for the fan who wants the physical product yeah. and doesn't want to just have a name on a playlist, yeah. then there's a way of getting like a high cost. At the moment, the CD is in a flimsy jewel box that falls apart with yeah. lyrics you can't read because they're printed so small, yeah. um, particularly if you get to our age. Well, um, That's right. <laughs> and, and, and a fan wants more. A fan wants something limited edition. They want, and we've seen this with Nine Inch Nails and um, bands who actually give their fan base something special, that the fan base pays a lot of money for it, yeah. way more than the 10, 15 bucks of the old days. But you're getting something, you should be able to get something physically special for a higher amount, and then something that is just a digital file for a lower amount. That's my thought process. Yeah, no, I agree with that. So are music publishers and the record labels still as important in the industry or is self you know recording in your kitchen with an apple I, I, I'm thinking back to the last album by um, uh, the la- I can't think of a name but the lady out of Canada uh, f- phenomenal singer who, who recorded, yeah who recorded the whole thing the whole album in a in a kitchen on an apple and it was just brilliant <laughs> that, that well there is that is the fact that you can technology has changed it was, you know, it was about a hundred thousand dollars to make a record, a, a sort of fairly basic recording. Yeah. Um, and now you can do it for nothing. Yeah. So that has changed the ability to make music. So the record companies love it, right? No, the record companies still have to pay. You know, they basically pay an artist in advance. In advances, they pay them what they think they're going to earn. If they're going to earn a million dollars, then perhaps they're paying a million dollars. The album may cost a million dollars to make. It may cost five dollars to make. Yeah. But that's, that the record companies are not getting off any lighter because the cost of making music has gone down. What the artist has got is the ability to make records without a record company saying, or a music publisher saying, we're going to give you the chance. So the chance has occurred. So for creativity, it's fantastic. Right. And... and for the record companies, it doesn't make much difference in terms of their um, of their profit and cash base. Rob, unfortunately, we've just about run out of time. So thanks very, very much for being on the show, particularly at the end of a long night. I know it's about midnight, so you're probably dying to get to bed. Um, I'm, I'm in the record lot. business. I don't go to bed at midnight. <laughs> you sit up and drink Coke and, and <laughs> eat chips. <laughs> well, it's Bob Pritchard, and I'll be right back after this short break with answers to your emails. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking. This is the business show where there is absolutely no bullshit. We come to you 
at the same time every week on the Voice America Network, which is headquartered in Phoenix, Arizona. Now, this show is all about entrepreneurs. Most people love the idea of having their own business, working for themselves. So why doesn't everybody become an entrepreneur? Well, there are nine things that separate an entrepreneur from everyone else. The first one is entrepreneurs do what they do for reasons that most people will never understand, unless they're also entrepreneurs, of course. Being an entrepreneur is bloody hard. It's hard physically because you end up working ridiculous hours, and it's hard emotionally because particularly in the early phases, it is stressful as hell. Every entrepreneur struggles with doubt, anxiety, despair. So why are entrepreneurs willing to face the vulnerability, the, you know, the emotion, emotional roller coaster and the risk of becoming a failure, not only in public, but with all your friends and everybody thinking, well, he started a business and he failed. Easy. Most entrepreneurs really have no choice. For the first reason that there's a voice in their heads is loud, saying, give it a go. Yes, we can. You know, others can doubt. Others can criticise. Mainly lawyers and accountants, I might add. If you're an entrepreneur, your biggest opposition is probably going to, apart from your spouse who's worried about how to put food on the table, which I understand, but um, the others that are going to be most critical are going to be accountants and lawyers. They're going to convince you why it's risky, why it's going to cost you 10 times more than you say it's going to cost, and they're going to um, judge, disparage, and disapprove. That's my um, my observation over quite a long time. You know, something about lawyers and accountants that just makes them so bloody negative. And, of course, they've got figures on their side. 97% of all businesses go broke. So to some degree, you've got to say that accountants and lawyers are right, but they're not. <laughs> you know, most entrepreneurs just don't care. They seal those opinions for what they are. They're not right. They're not wrong. Then you're starter. And, you know, why not me? Why can't I do it? Fred did it. Zuckerberg did it. Gates did it. Hundreds of thousands of other people have done it. The guy that runs a local dry cleaning store has done it. So why not me? You know, you can respect the opinions of others, but still believe in your own ideas and your abilities, your will and your perseverance, and, of course, the most important thing, dedication. If you believe in yourself, you want to live your life the way you want to live it, not the way somebody else wants to live it. And the second reason is that entrepreneurs believe that how, the, how they play the game and the way you play the game is far more important than whether you win or whether you lose. If you're an entrepreneur, you'd rather fail doing something that you love on your own terms 
than be successful on someone else's. You'd rather reach for your own future than have your future lie in someone else's hands. You figure that it's better to burn out than just fade away. You know, I must admit I had a meeting in the city yesterday and at five o'clock, millions of little ants in their grey, blue and black suits and their striped ties all racing to catch transport, go to the car parks and whatever. Millions and millions of little ants doing all the same thing every day to get home after doing all the same thing every day where they work. God, if I had to do that, I would kill myself. Now, sure, entrepreneurs want to win. They're driven to win. But they also want to change the rules. They want to do things differently. They want to make things better. Because winning a game in a way that society forces you to play it still feels like losing, doesn't it? The third reason is that entrepreneurs don't make, don't make choices. They create choices. Most people choose from column A or column B, but entrepreneurs look at column A, then they look at column B, and they go and create a column C. It's far more interesting, it's far more involving, and it's far more fun. Now, John Birchstone says, every time you want to make any important decision, there are two possible courses of action. You can look at the array of choices that present themselves, pick the best available option, and then try to make it fit, or you can do what the true entrepreneur does, figure out the best conceivable option, and then make it happen. And that's why they often accomplish the inconceivable, because to entrepreneurs, that word truly doesn't mean what everyone else thinks it means. Now, I'm just amazed at somebody who sits there and says, I might invent a telephone. <laughs> I mean, you make the first phone, who the hell are you going to ring? But what an amazing thing. Well, I'm going to create the internet. I'm going to have people type on a keyboard and have that message go through the ether and get to the other end. Or I'm going to print a car on a 3D printer. I mean, they're just amazing accomplishments by people who are entrepreneurs that don't think much differently than you and I, except they give it a go. Fourth, entrepreneurs enjoy succeeding through others. Talent's obviously important, but the ability to work together to create a team that all rise and fall together, that check their egos at the door and make individual sacrifices for the sake of the end result and the other members, that's incredible. 
I love it when you go into incubators. You've got 20 different businesses sharing cubicle space, 20 separate businesses that could be in one way or another competing. They're certainly competing to be successful, and yet they share information. They help each other. They work with each other. They cooperate with each other. I think that's phenomenal. And that that spirit, you know, this spirit of drive and achievement can only exist when it comes from the very top. And that's why entrepreneurs focus on the individual rather than the position. They focus on the team rather than the hierarchy. And most important, from gaining success from the happiness and success of others. You know, I've worked um, several times for people who have this, I'm the boss and I know best and I will tell you the way this should work. But, sir, I've got, a, I've got a question. I've got another alternative. I've got another option. Forget it. My option's best. Well, it doesn't happen with entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs work together. And the only time that that hierarchy comes to play, probably, is when one person in the team has an extraordinary intellect. Like, I'm not saying this is so, but somebody like, a musk, it would be difficult to um, to deviate too much from his opinions because they're so accurate. And now the fifth reason that entrepreneurs want to be entrepreneurs is because they don't need to be disciplined because they, they can't wait to do all the things that bring them closer to achieving their goals. They get up earlier, they work harder, they work longer, they work through lunch, they just keep going, they work at weekends because they can see the finish line and they can't wait to get there. Entrepreneurs can't wait to do the things that they have to do. They've got goals and they've got dreams and they know that every task that they complete takes them one step closer to achieving those goals and those dreams. That's why entrepreneurs can have fun performing even the most mundane tasks. When there's a clear line of sight between what you are doing and where you want to go, it's not work any longer. It's fun. That's different. This fun work is exciting. It's fulfilling. And it's living a dream. And that's different than going into work and working. Entrepreneurs also, they just don't want to simply gain a skill and then live some sort of routine. Some people work to gain a skill or achieve a position so they can relax, comfortable in their abilities and their knowledge. They've worked hard. They're content. That's not a bad thing. It's just that their definition of success is different. Entrepreneurs hate the contentment an acquired skill brings to you. Entrepreneurs hate the comfort that achievement affords. Entrepreneurs see acquired skills as the foundation of acquiring more skills, of taking more risks, of having a basis on which to go further out on the limb. They see achievements as platforms 
for further achievement. Entrepreneurs really pay their dues. They really do, particularly in those early stages. And they want to keep paying their dues. You know, they look in the mirror and say, what have you done for me lately? Get off your ass. Go out and do something. And then they go out and do more. And one of the great things that I love about entrepreneurs, particularly those here in the United States, is that they're often huge fans of other entrepreneurs. You know, working for a corporation, that's a zero-sum game because personal success usually comes at the expense of others. If you get promoted, someone else doesn't. If you get an opportunity, someone else doesn't. That's why in a corporate setting, it's really hard not to begrudge the success of others. It's head-to-head. It's you or them. Dog-eat-dog. It's hard to be genuinely happy for a co-worker when they've pinched the spot that you think you should have and you're really disappointed. But entrepreneurs love it when others succeed. As I mentioned earlier, I belong to this group called Metal Media Entertainment Technology Alpha Leaders in Los Angeles, which is 1,600 of the leading entrepreneurs and alpha leaders in the entertainment technology and media business. All of the heavies from all of the studios, all of the startups, all of the major tech companies and entertainment people, they're all in this group. And it is the most supportive group I've ever come across in my life. Everybody wants to help everybody. Everybody in the group is working with others in the group. When somebody succeeds, you know, everybody applauds. So, you know, entrepreneurs love it when other people succeed. They know the pie's huge. You know, there's plenty of pie for everyone. And entrepreneurs sit there and say, gee, the pie's big. How do we make a bigger pie? I mean, it's really quite fantastic. I love it. And, you know, we are, when we talk about entrepreneurs, we usually think about people like the Musks and the um, Zuckerbergs, etc., who are doing technology stuff. But an entrepreneur can be a person who sets up a dog-walking business or opens a pharmacy or, I don't know, does hairdressing, comes to your house to do hairdressing. They're entrepreneurs as well. And entrepreneurs see the success of other entrepreneurs as being exciting and inspirational and as a validation that their creativity and hard work will pay off. Now, the eighth reason people become entrepreneurs is that they're content to start a movement of one. They'll go out on their own. And we all like to belong, to feel we're kindred spirits. And that's why some ideas quickly gain a following and why great ideas can quickly become movements. Joining a crowd is awesome, but every movement starts with one person who dares to stand up, alone, unprotected, and vulnerable, and be different, to say what others aren't saying, and to do what others aren't doing, 
to take a chance and accept the consequences come what may. So what makes entrepreneurs willing to take that risk? Well, entrepreneurs all think, why not me? Now, regardless of what you do, success is bloody difficult to achieve. That's why we all fail sometimes. And when we do, it's easy to decide that events were really outside your control. It's easy to feel depressed and think, why don't I ever get the opportunities that other people get? Or why aren't my friends more supportive? Or why can't I catch a break? You know, it's very easy to think, why me? But entrepreneurs ask themselves a different question. Why not me? That's why entrepreneurs will open a restaurant in the same location where other restaurants have failed. They didn't succeed, but why not me? I can succeed. Entrepreneurs will start a software company, but nothing but an idea. Why not me? Entrepreneurs don't assume successful people possess special talents or a gift from the startup gods. They see successful and pe- they see successful people, and they think that's awesome. If they can do it, why not me? If you think about it, there's no real answer to why not me, because when you're truly willing to not just dream big, but also to try incredibly hard, there's no reasons you can't succeed. At least none that are important. Now remember, the Bob Pritchard Radio Show is here to sell. Help all small businesses succeed. Send in your questions. Email me at bob at bobpritchard.com. Follow me on Twitter, Google+. Become a contact of mine on LinkedIn. And just remember, if you missed my April newsletter and would like to receive my main newsletter, go to bobpritchard.com and register. Don't forget, I want to hear from you. So visit my website at bobpritchard.com. Sign in for my newsletter and let me know what you want me to talk about. I just had one little quote. With all the governments seeming to cut back on the amount of money they're spending on everything from healthcare to infrastructure to welfare, um, I'm reminded of a quote by Winston Churchill. I contend that for a nation to try to tax itself into prosperity is like a man standing in a bucket and trying to lift himself up by the handle. And, uh, you know, I think that is really important. Talk is cheap, except when a government does it. So thanks for listening to the Bob Pritchard No Bullshit Business Radio Show for Entrepreneurs. And remember, if you're successful about, if you're serious (laughs) about being successful, this is the place to come every week at the same time. This is Bob Pritchard on the Voice America Business Network, and I hope you have a fantastic week. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.